0: Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. I'm glad to have you with us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. It's I mean it's kind of an arbitrary thing, 200 episodes, but I feel it's worth celebrating in a in a world in we which we've made it baby. We've managed to keep it uh, keep it going for a little while Wait, since 2016 off and on a few breaks in there, but um, Thank you if you've been listening this entire time. God bless you, but also... Um, those
1: people don't exist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they gave up a long time they ago. They gave up a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is it is such an honor, and as we always say, it's, it's a labor of love. So, um, reflections from you. We've got a lot of people wrote in to sort of share some of their favorite moments, but before uh, we read some of those, uh, what do you guys think? Uh, Sarah, RJ...
1: I cannot believe people listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it really genuinely, I say this to people when we get these like sweet emails and stuff. It genuinely feels like just having a conversation with two of my friends. And I feel really lucky that I get, I mean, I talk to you guys more than I talk to a lot of my friends (laughs) and I feel really lucky to get to do that. So it's amazing that anyone listens to this to me.
2: I feel the same way. It's just like one of the best (laughs) things in my life. And you two are so funny and talented and insightful. There have been so many weeks where I'm like, what am I going to preach this Sunday? And and then (laughs) the mocking cast comes up like, oh, there you go, a little gift. Um, And yeah, what a a huge blessing to be spent time with you guys and then to be useful by God's grace in other people's lives, you know, to be useful sinners, uh, to quote a a a Mockingbird publication. Mm. Um, It's been fun and uh, just humbled to do this with you guys, so Thank you. And thanks to everyone out there who listens. Jeez Louise. Yes,
1: yes. I don't
0: think I expected to enjoy... You know, sometimes projects have a shelf life. <laughs> didn't expect and to
2: enjoy spending
0: time with the two didn't of you. I expect to enjoy it. I, I expected to enjoy being with you guys. I didn't know if I expected to enjoy the format so much. I, I like it. I, I mean, yeah. it, the, the whole thing is... Essentially improvised because we're yeah. none of us have scripts, and that is so refreshing, you know, to hear. We just go wherever it takes us, basically, with some signposts along the way. And I understand, I guess, why podcasts have become so popular, having to put these together now for however many years.
2: But Dave, I have to, I got to say, you you tee it up. You teed mm, up pretty well, mm. man. You're you're the curator. Like you're the one who picks the, yes. the articles. You're the one who reads yeah. all this stuff. Blame and you Dave. Make our lives, yeah. You make our lives pretty easy. So just kudos to you, David Zoll, for all that you have accomplished. <laughs> and, well, it uh, is interesting
0: if you, you figure out what 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 can be teed up and what shouldn't be teed up, and what uh, what. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and also, like, there's been a few times people don't... There's a few outtakes out there that someone oh, yeah. will hopefully never hear unless unless Sarah runs for president
2: one day, in which and case... And it's all coming It's all going public. Uh, Mutually assured destruction.
1: I mean, it's very No one will rare. put me up for Bishop, but they will nominate me for president. I think
0: that, that's, that says something. That <laughs> says something important. The people... I was asking people about their favorite moments of the last, you know, of the run, mm-hmm. and... Um, Sarah, get in the pool. Got like four or five different votes Absolutely. from people. Absolutely, you're gonna
2: get die. The, you're gonna get die. In get pool. in the pool. <laughs>
0: you're gonna die. But also, Do we have
2: t-shirts with that yet. We need t-shirts. <laughs> we, I, think, I think. I think there was mugs, a t-shirts,
0: bumper stickers. <laughs> we need it. RJ, someone someone wrote in to say that your Jesus's aunt Becky um, uh-huh. riff that um, was completely unplanned was um, that that was the penny dropped for them in a very yeah. powerful way. Uh, and, and then, you know, anytime we've referenced the, well, I guess, the, our holy trinity of Dolly Parton, Fred Rogers, mm-hmm. or Weird Al, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of people have mentioned those episodes in particular as being kind of fun. I guess we have to find some more characters to, to profile. But we, here's, I, I have another, uh, one, one person in, uh, in Chattanooga said that she actually thought RJ was the one singing Praise the Lord during the opener. And I, I, I have heard from some folks that, that enjoy <laughs> it
1: when it's <laughs> absurd. <laughs> it's me, clearly. Obviously. Let's hear it, base. RJ. What are you on, gonna you do you going to
2: do? You can do it. You can do it. Praise the Lord. <laughs> oh, my God. Praise RJ. the Lord, God. <laughs> I definitely, yes, I, de- I have that much soul. Absolutely. I'm Dutch <laughs> soul over here in West Palm Beach, Florida. Dutch soul. Mm. The best kind of soul.
1: <laughs> Here's a
0: message from someone on Instagram named L. Bex. She said, "I look forward to the Mockingcast every week. I love hearing your take on cultural commentary and how to see the world through a grace tinted lens." This has opened my eyes to examples of grace everywhere in my own life and in the media I take in. The Mockingcast has deeply encouraged me in my parenting, and I really enjoy hearing about how you navigate the difficult waters of kids in our anxiety-filled culture. The Mockingcast has let me accept grace for myself and give it so much easier. Thank you for keeping it real, being smart, and enjoying your forgiveness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, Um. thank you, thank you,
1: Bex. I appreciate that. That's so sweet.
0: I got Ben Fort wrote in to say, What I appreciate most about The Mockingcast Cast is how it's helped shape my vision over time. Because of the podcast, the dynamics of grace and law are easier for me to see in the news and in my life. Sarah, do you have the one that I, I told you? I, I told do. You? Why don't you, why don't, Sarah, why don't you read that one? Okay.
1: I was introduced to The Mocking Cast by my pastor shortly after you three became the full-time host, and I have been deeply grateful for it ever since. I will never forget Sarah telling that lady to get into the pool because she was going <laughs> to die someday. <laughs> or or RJ breaking his fast because he found a free juice stand.
2: Free, d- <laughs> Unlimited juice? Unlimited <laughs> this juice. This party is going to be off the... Hook. It's
1: going to be lit. I got my beret. Um, and Dave's memes and articles frequently make my day. My pastor and I joke that we must be closeted Episcopalians since we both love the podcast so much, but really, it's just a testament to your balance of human stories and struggles and your wisdom steeped in God's grace. You keep me laughing and crying in equal measure. It is my weekly reminder that no one has this Christianity thing on lockdown. And my, that my inability to meet the law is just an amplification of God's amazing forgiveness. Ooh, honey, you are preaching to me right now. I need to hear that. Y'all are goofy, grounding, and loving, and have been an inspiration in my own walk with Christ. Thank you for all you do, and congrats on the 200th episode milestone. I don't know if y'all want to do another 200 episodes, but I'll be listening if you do. That's so sweet. That's so Good. Gosh, thank you guys. Thank, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Rutger? That's from Kelsey.
2: Yeah, one from Tom, um, which is, uh, you know, fits with our current moment. In a world where hard left and hard right are constantly screaming at me from every direction, the mocking cast is my rest and respite where grace and peace carry the day. Without ever being over, uh, overly political, the laughs, banter, and intelligent discussion by Dave, Sarah, and RJ take me to a place of Sabbath each and every time I listen. I'm always brought back to the cross, forgiveness, and yes, grace. I'm constantly recommending the mocking cast of friends and acquaintances. Couldn't we all use more grace in our lives? Aww. That's great. Aww. And there's, Dave, there's one more, too. And this, this just reminds me how much of... Um, I don't know how much of what I say is just stuff I've heard from other people. I'm just a mockingbird, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And and someone was talking about um, something I'd said when they were in a moment of transition in their life, and they were trying to make a decision and filled with anxiety, and I said something about, um, you know, God will be with you no matter what you decide, right? No matter what you decide, no matter where you go, God will be with you. Um, And that's something that our dear friend um, Jonathan Adams said to me. Um, now probably about, gosh, 10 years ago, when I was in a moment of transition and anxiety, and he said, RJ, you, you can't make a wrong decision because wherever you go, wherever you end up, God will be with you. And so that was me just um, passing along that word of comfort I needed in my life that connected with someone who needed it in theirs. So
1: shout out I'm to Joe for, Nathan.
2: That's right. I'm grateful for what for <laughs> mocking, Mockingbird Nation, Mockingbird Nation. You know, <laughs> all those Nation. people. out there.
1: <laughs> oh, that's oh, great. I had, I had someone,
0: um, another person wrote in on Facebook to say how much he loves the podcast. He looks forward to it every time. I love the vulnerability and the emphasis on grace. This is uh, Jeremy speaking. I found out about Mockingbird. Googling Robert Farr Capon quotes. I have almost every book he has ever written, and I have read almost all of them. From Mockingbird, uh, then I learned about the podcast. During COVID, I've gone back and listened to most of the ones I missed. Keep, Please keep up the great work, the finding of grace in different articles and sharing it with us. This podcast has been a life breath for those of us recovering from the guilt and the law of what are you doing with your quarantine? And To which I, to which I answer, I am listening to the mocking cast, damn it. <laughs> grace and peace to you and Sarah and RJ. Um, and they kind of see they kept coming in. So it was really, it's really fun just to hear. Uh, uh, this is not to say any of the, the random emails we get from people. So do be in touch with us. We love hearing from you. And um, unless it's criticism, in which case. Then, <laughs>
1: that's no right. You. In which case, no keep it to yourself. Oh,
0: someone also mentioned anytime there's a Jesus showing up with a handful of Lexapro moment, they, they love that. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a shout-out for the Bondage of the Will mini-cast, mini which was a, uh, which is yeah. a little experiment a few summers ago.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, someone talked about the, the, um, the listening for confession story that I told a couple weeks ago. Mm. Uh, Janelle said that it gave me restored hope to offer in confidence that the grace of Jesus has carried us this far and will lead us home. Mm. Mm. Wow. Golly gee,
2: it's hard oh, to follow no. that up. Wow. Um, Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks, everyone. It's been a great, what a great episode. We'll see you next time. <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> well, for our, for our 200th episode, my idea was to delve into some of the articles that predate our um, podcast and stuff, but stuff that seems to, be, to continue to carry relevance and also just fit the vibe of what it is we're doing here. And the first one I felt like we couldn't uh, go without doing a one of Tim Crider's greatest hits. One of Tim Tim Crider the essayist and who wrote for the New York Times for a long time and um, he wrote an essay that was collected in his book called We Learn Nothing. An essay is called The Tsar's Daughter. And this was really connected with people. I think back in like 2012, way back then. And it, in, it involves a uh, deceased friend of Tim's whose name's Skelly. Apparently, Skelly was quite the character who was reputed in the stories uh, in their own circles for the stories he told about himself, most of which were, in Tim's word, not in the strictest, most (laughs) literal-minded sense of the word true. Uh, But he describes Skelly as a teller of tall tales who's lovable in the extreme and a self-described Christian. Now, after he died, Tim and his friends learned some rather disconcerting truths about Skelly's mental health, and reflecting on what made their unconventional friend tick, uh, Tim wrote this essay, um, which introduced an inspired term that I've gotten a lot of mileage out of, as as has Mockingbird, uh, that they used to describe Skelly's behavior and also the, the judgments we face in our daily lives. Here's Tim. He says, knowing things about someone is not the same thing as knowing them. As far as I know, none of Skelly's friends cared about the facts of his life that embarrassed him so deeply. If anything, we were just sorry that he'd ever felt the need to tell us these ridiculous stories. It implied that, on some level, he felt badly about himself, as if he didn't believe we'd like him for who he really was. What someone's lies reveal about them—aspirations to being an accomplished writer, fantasies of an exotic history and a cosmopolitan family—are always sadder than the fact of the lies themselves. Years ago, here's where we sort of get to the term itself. Years ago, a friend of mine and I used to frequent a market in Baltimore where we would eat oysters and drink beer. One of the regulars there had the worst toupee in the world. (laughs) A comical little wig taped in place on the top of his head. Looking at this man, we developed the concept of the soul toupee. Each of us has a soul toupee. The soul toupee is that thing about ourselves we are most deeply embarrassed by and like to think we have cunningly concealed from the world, but which is in fact pitifully obvious to everybody who knows us. Contemplating one's own soul to pay is not an exercise for the faint hearted. Most of the time other people don't even get why our soul to pay is any big deal or a cause of such evident deep shame to us. But they can tell that it is because of our inept, transparent efforts to cover it up, which only call more attention to it and to our self consciousness about it. And so they gently pretend not to notice it. Meanwhile, we're standing there with our little rigid, sponge like square of hair pasted on our heads thinking, Ha! Got 'em all fooled. <laughs> What's so ironic and sad about this is that the very parts of ourselves that we're uh, most ashamed of and eager to conceal are not only obvious to everyone else, but are also quite often the parts of us they love best. Skelly's stories themselves, not their content, but the fact of his telling them, were part of what we liked about him. So good. (laughs) Soul (laughs) toupees.
1: I remember when this came out, though, because, like, you know, Hair Loss for Me started, what, 2009? And I was like, I'm not reading this. <laughs> <laughs> it's too I'm much not reading anything about a soul too big. At once for me. Um, I don't know. This makes me think a lot about... Um, and people... I don't know. People can be really harsh about this, but I think it's valuable. About, like, inner child work and, you know, thinking about the little person that looks in all of us and what that person needed and maybe didn't get and what that person longed for and hoped for and and what that person was afraid of and how that's really still true now. Right. Mm, And that some of the most beloved hopes and dreams that that little person had are still there. Um, I recently was a reader for my daughter's first grade class and um i think i've said on here before like i always wanted to be a um elementary school teacher but i never like said that out loud because it's not like a strong feminist thing to do you know in my little brain it wasn't and i don't know there was something so beautiful about about that moment about being with those kids in that moment in that way and That, like, fed me. I don't know. I think also recently um, I've been avoiding – you guys, this is, like, the lamest. But um, I have always wanted to do calligraphy. Even when I was a little kid, I, like, had the little calligraphy sets you would get. And I was obsessed with them. And I, as an adult, you know, calligraphy is very in right now, right? Like, are you even a Christian woman if you don't have (laughs) – a print in your house from Hobby Lobby written in, you know, calligraphy by a small child in China that says it is well with my soul. Um, <laughs> and uh, all shall be well and all shall be well. No all shall be well. Shall be yeah, well. yeah. 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 Um, so I really trepid with a lot of trepidation bought myself a calligraphy book and a set of pens. And I was convinced my husband was going to make fun of me for whatever reason. I don't know why I was convinced he was going to make fun of me. And I kind of, like, low-key pulled it out. We're sitting on the couch together and, like, started, like, practicing very poorly at calligraphy. And he goes, I'm in such awe of you. And it was, like, such a beautiful, you know, it was, like, this thing about myself that – is sort of gentle and creative, which is never how I want to be perceived. And, um, and that he loved it so much in that moment was just, I don't know. I, i really, these parts of ourselves that we hide and, and the fact that we think we're hiding them <laughs> is so funny. <laughs> um, you know, and that God sees it all and, and loves us for it.
0: That's a great story. I have a really dear friend. Here's a calligrapher of the sort of highest order and watching She's her, like
1: very good. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> watching her, I, 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 I get so in awe of and every time you actually see the person do it. when you, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's truly a, an art. And, and anyway, um, this is n- neither here nor there, but I think it's a very uh, impressive skill. Well, RJ, what what you've got a lot of you got a your whole face is covered in a soul toupee. So I'm just which, one big soul which, toupee. Exactly.
2: Which aspect no, of
0: it are we going to talk about right now?
2: I don't know. It's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's terr- <laughs> it is. It's terrifying. It's like, gosh, does everyone really see me? Do they? You know? Do they? Do they see how much I want to be liked, and you know how much encouragement yeah. I need, and how insecure I am, and all that sort of stuff? You know, what is, uh, you know. You you cannot you can't not read this article and wonder to yourself what what's my soul to pay? Yeah, is this bad as I think it is, or yeah. is it worse? Which one is it? Right. Um, but it uh, it reminds me. I think I've told this story before that you know early on in our married life and relationship, I think my my wife and I we'd go to church and we liked church and stuff, but we also just thought to ourselves, "Gosh, Christians are so weird." You know, they're weird. And then the older we got, we're like, "No, no, no." Everyone is weird. It's just that Christians, are, you know, you're around them a little more, and they're a little more comfortable with their oddities or something mm, like that. And yeah. then as we got, we, as as we've been married for longer, you know, we see each other's um, soul toupees more more clearly. You know, like when I when I'm being encouraging to my wife, and I'm like, "Gosh, honey, you're you're the best, and you just look so beautiful, and and you're an amazing, you know, you're an amazing mother." And she looks at me, and she goes, "Oh, honey, do you need some encouragement right now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that?" I'm like, oh. I thought I was hiding. I thought you couldn't (laughs) tell us. What kind of question is that? Um, (laughs) But there is, right, that that, this essay is a beautiful picture of what real relationships, real friendships, real community looks like, where you see each other's soul toupees and. You love each other anyway. Yeah, you know you there's know, there's
0: a there's a um, a quote that we use quite a bit, uh, or we have used in the past, from Walker Percy that we love mm. those who see the worst of us and don't turn their face away. And I've yeah. just mm. I've been I've been reading um his, the book that it, it can that in which that quote from which that quote comes called Love in the Ruins, and it's a uproariously funny, unnervingly prophetic book. Um, but that that passage is when he's checked himself into a mental institution for a complete breakdown, and he talks about uh. the, the, the freedom he experiences as part of this institution of sort of, I don't know, outcasts or... It, it's not cuckoo's nest, but it's close, you know? And he that's what he's talking about. He's saying that the the, the other... Patients at the clinic saw him for who he was in, at his worst, and they loved him still. That's where he um, where he experienced that. I thought that was a really interesting little fill in the context for that beautiful, almost calligraphyable uh, uh, quote. Made mm. me think of. I remember a few years ago walking in on. A couple of uh, uh, my wonderful Mockingbird colleagues, uh, Will McDavid and, and Ethan Richardson, and they were doing an impression of me, uh, acting like I was uh, <laughs> like I was paying, a t- like trying not to. Um, Uh, be distracted you know i I guess i'm very distractible and some people say i've got adhd and that i've i can't i can't multitask and all these things and i i think that i've completely hidden that part of myself and that no one knows that i'm just thoroughly present everywhere i go ministry of presence (laughs) and they had me down cold and i was like i was like at the same time i was like oh crap but then i also (laughs) felt like really really loved you know that, that
1: yes. it was it
0: was it was a moment. They weren't doing it in yes. maybe there's was, there was a slight bit of uh, you know edge to it, but for the most part, it was like that's just who Dave is. <laughs> How long do I have his attention for? When do can I like? When is he gonna get off the phone and all that stuff? So, I felt very loved in that moment because that's what grace is. That's what that's what grace is when people love. Uh, there, it also reminded me of that wonderful quote from Mary Carr. Uh, when she was talking about um, memoirs and reading memoirs, you know, that that, that work and that don't work. And she said, we each nurture a private terror that some core aspect of either ourselves or our story must be hidden or disowned. Yet with every manuscript I've ever edited, even grown-ass writers, the traits a writer often fights hardest to hide may serve as undeniable facets of both self and story.
1: Mm.
2: It reminds me too, Dave, of another term we've used quite a bit in the podcast, you know, that a is the opposite of the purity spiral, right? It's the, it's the complete opposite. Explain, you know, it's seeing each other as we are and loving each other as opposed to making this, you know, unbelievable, harsh demand that you must be perfect and pure and, and uh, yeah. Well, we're going to move
0: on from Soul Toupes onto America the Anxious. One of our uh, abiding themes on this podcast is anxiety. And Ruth Whitman, who is an English writer who lives in America, she wrote... Uh, An unbelievable article about America and about happiness and anxiety. And uh, she wrote it back in 2012 and then turned it into a book which came out. And this is what she writes. Despite being the richest nation on earth, the United States is, according to the World Health Organization, by a wide margin, also the most anxious, with nearly a third of Americans likely to suffer from an anxiety problem in their lifetime. America's precocious levels of anxiety are not just happening in spite of the great national happiness rat race, but also perhaps because of it. In America, happiness is work, intense, nail-biting work, slogged out in motivational seminars and therapy sessions, meditation retreats, and airport bookstores. For the left, there's yoga. For the right, there's Jesus. For no one is there respite. There is something joyless about the whole shindig. The people taking part in happiness pursuits, as a rule, don't seem very happy. At the one and only yoga class I attended, shortly after arriving in the United States, the tension and misery in the room was palpable, Mm. which makes sense because a person who was already feeling happy would be unlikely to waste the sensation in a sweaty room at the YMCA. Uh, The happy person would be more likely to be off uh, doing something fun, like sitting in a park drinking. Since moving to the States just shy of a year ago, I've had more conversations about my own happiness than in the whole rest of my life. The subject comes up in park pushing, parks, uh, pushing swings alongside a mother i met moments before, with the man behind the fish counter at the supermarket, with my gym instructor, and with our babysitter who arrives to put our son to bed armed with pamphlets about a nudist happiness retreat in Northern California. While the British way can be drainingly negative, the American approach to happiness can spur a debilitating anxiety. The initial sense of promise and hope is seductive, but it soon gives way to a nagging, slow-burning feeling of inadequacy. Am I happy? Happy enough? As happy as everyone else? Could I be doing more about it? Even basic contentment feels like failure when pitched against capital H happiness. The goal is so elusive and hard to define, it's impossible to pinpoint even when it's been achieved. A recipe for neurosis, in other words. Boom. Are you happy?
1: <laughs> I mean, I think this is like where Mockingbird does some of its best work around um, how people are told the way they should feel versus how they feel. Hmm. I'm also like not, I don't really, it's interesting for me when other people try to define happiness. Cause even her definition of happiness, like I was looking at our children last night at the dinner table and they were so funny and, like, it and and insightful. And they're at this age where they're telling us everything that happened at school. And we both just, like, sit there and we look at each other, you know, with knowing glances. And then we look at them. And, like, that feels so, um, so beautiful. It almost hurts. And it's it makes me so happy. But, you know, I, I just – I don't know. I – It's also so fleeting. Mm -hmm. And I think a big gift I've gotten out of this ministry and out of the podcast, frankly, has been that, like, that's okay, you know, Um, that all of our days can encompass, you know, some of the hardest things and some of the best things and, you know, that we're never alone in that with God. I don't know. What do you (laughs) think, RJ?
2: Well, first of all, it reminds me of that... um, Instagram you sent us yesterday, you know, that oh do what do gosh. what you love. You know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, except never work a day in your life is crossed out. And it, what it reads and said is do what you love and you'll work super hard all the time with no separation or any boundaries and also take everything extremely personally. I <laughs> and I was like,
1: oh! Well and I saw I have to tell you, I saw a woman right I underneath out loud. that. She's so she, good. She was like, wait until you're retired and then you do all this for free. And I was like Honey, no, uh, no, baby, that is not what we say. Uh huh. Um,
2: but just personally reflecting, you know, as a as a professional Christian, mm. I think one of the stories I tell myself is that my happiness will uh, attest to the veracity of what I profess. Huh. You know that 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 whether or not people will take me seriously or take the message I have, have seriously or take Jesus seriously, yeah is in direct proportion to how happy I um, pretend to be or appear to be. Um, and then I think about the Bible, I'm like, how many people in the Bible would you describe as happy? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm not, not so many. And the, and the other reality is that, um, you know, because I now post all my sermons on YouTube, because that's the world we live in, um, far and away my most watched sermon this year was, in the title, was on sadness, like it yeah. was just straight up on sadness. Yeah. Um, and, and people have told me how much that meant to them. And I'm, and I'm like, what, what is true here? What is true here? And, and um, you know, I don't, you, know, you don't, you don't want to be uh, too much yourself, <laughs> you know, but, but it is, it's, it's a bit enslaving, mm. you know, um, this, this desire, this need, this American need, an American Christian need in particular to be happy all the time. Rather than having the freedom to sort of tell the truth and live in the light, you know, which ironically leads to something kind of like happiness, kind of like freedom, kind of like joy, but you have to have the courage to um, be willing to tell the truth. Yeah, so you know. I
1: was at a commission on ministry meeting yesterday, which is like fancy talk for like people who want to be ordained. They have to go through all these meetings, and so there were all these people from all over the diocese at it. Lots, lots of male rectors under the age of fifty, and I know all these guys, right? Because they. We're, we're all, you know,
2: we're they all sound under, amazing. Don't they sound
1: amazing? <laughs> I think, I think and you're I married said, to one of them. <laughs> I would, I am married to one of them. And I said, I would say, how's it going? And they were all like, it's great. Everything's great. You know, like, Church is like what I was even like, church is great. I was like, wait, 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 wait. Are you did you find a place the pandemic's not happening? Like church is great? You know, like <laughs> I was just like, what? Mm. And then I came home to my sweet husband and he said, I think I pretty much said the same thing when people asked me how it was going. And it is that. So I do want to speak to the fact that it's easier for some of us to say, uh, for whatever reason, and sometimes that's gender. Um it's not great. Everything's really hard, you know, um, and I'm struggling. Hmm. And I think, you know, it's a lot. Sometimes it's depending on your station in life and your job. It is really, really you're pushed into this place where you have to say everything's great. It's great. It's amazing. Everything's amazing, you know, when it's not. And that's a huge burden to bear. Yeah. Huge. Um, In
2: in fact, yeah, one of the most comforting things I saw uh, today, I woke up and on Facebook um, from a guy I know who heads up one of the largest kind of clergy Christian recruiting firms mm -hmm. in the country says, Question, has 2020 gotten you down at any point? You're not alone. Way too many leaders I work with say, all caps, yes. I'd love to hear what's helping you cope. Message me. And it has like only five thumbs up. Like people are probably, do- they're like, I'm not liking that. Right. But I but I, but I I kind of want to know. I kind of want to call and be like, how many, how messages, many messages did you did get? Because I certainly thought, because I'm doing fine, but I thought about, I'm you know, my, maybe. Me- tell me about, who
1: yeah. I need to pray for. You know, one <laughs> exactly. of
2: the, guys,
0: one of the um, things I almost brought into this, uh, I guess I'll bring it in now to this podcast, was there's an article about the real roots of midlife crisis that mm. Jonathan Rauch wrote uh, in 2014, I think, in The Atlantic. And he talks about the U-bend of happiness, where people mm-hmm. are happier when they're younger, and then they're happier when they're older. And, then there's a, yeah. uh, and in fact, this precise demographic you, you describe, which are sort of professionals in the age of 40 to 50, tend to be the unhappiest of all. And a lot of that has to do with, but it, but it's, it's, it, it, it goes younger, too, And uh, because we see this, I think I see it a lot of times in 20-somethings, in fact, that there's what's called an expectation hangover. I love this term, expectation hangover, Ooh. in that That's you're told plan. that your college years will be the best years of your life, or your 20s will be the best years of your life, and that you'll get better and better, and things are going to open up for you. And then, of course, either the meritocracy doesn't really work, or there's a pandemic, or there's a recession,
2: or you get what you wanted and it wasn't all that or good. you get what yes. you wanted, and you
0: if you have in fact having a little success, just totally. it's, those are the those are actually the most they, they they he they interview all these people because they say it holds across the whole world and they say that the people that were in poverty were actually happier than the ones who had who had gotten out of poverty because they they wanted to keep going <laughs> and they had, they had sort of gotten a narrative of themselves as getting better and better and better now I find it's very true for um, people in their 40s but men women I don't know if I just know that in my own context I see a lot of looking around and comparing and is this all there is um, maybe yes. I've gotten I've gotten I've yeah. got the kids I've got the marriage I've got the house but I've still got this inner sense because I, I don't really think of myself as a very happy person. I don't, I don't, I, I think like I've got, I've, I have happy moments, but I, mm. um, you know, I've just had dealt with depression for so long in my life that it's, I, mm. I feel like happiness is the, um, is the exception, not the rule. And uh, again, RJ, I completely identify with this idea that you have to. You're you're selling a product that you're you're, you're mm. uh, I'm not only a, you know a member. I'm also the pres- this president. This
2: works. Yeah, <laughs> it really works. Jesus
0: works. <laughs> but that sense of an expect yeah. the, the higher the expectations we have for how happy we're going to be, the less happy we are. And that is like yes. uh, that's universally true. And this sense and like the the you can you can Americans get so unhappy about their happiness (laughs) or about their happiness pursuits that it feels like a recipe for disaster. And I mean, this, the, what, what the guy says in the articles that you then, once you're, you're at 40 and you say, is this all there is? And then all of a sudden you get to 50 and you think, huh, I, I guess I'm, this is, I'm pretty grateful for what I have. And then it kind of gets better and better and better. I don't know if that's true. I'm only 41. I don't know if, if, if people will feel more and more grateful, but, and you stop comparing yourself quite as much to uh, other people around you. But I do know that the expectation plays a huge role in our anxiety and in our happiness.
2: I mean, Dave, speaking as the one here who's closest to 50, and it's, uh, how old am I again? I think it's four years. God, it's four years off. That's so, that's so crazy to me. I still kind of think of myself in my mind as kind of being 35. Yeah. You know, and I'm almost 50. And there, it has in the past few, like, it has, I'm, like, I'm going to be 50. If
1: you could see his scan, <laughs> if you could see his scan. No, his... but I'm going to be 50. Dorian Gray over like,
2: here. Yeah. What is it? What is, I mean, there's a little bit of like, Will I feel happy with what I've accomplished? Mm. Will I have done? Will I have done enough? Will I be in a stage in my life where I feel that you know? Um I've accomplished enough, to that what I should have by the time I was 50. It's kind of nuts. But you do,
0: I mean, I think it's a time of life where you look around, and especially on Instagram, Or uh, you, it, we used to go to dinner parties, but now you just look at Instagram and you're like, I, there's no way they're as happy as they appear on Instagram. You know, that, that's the great uh, um, comfort that we have. We deconstruct it as, as the ultimate goal that everyone is falling short of. And yet, yet you know, um, as you say... I. I I don't want to say that. when I say that I'm not a very happy person. It doesn't mean I'm miserable. It just means that I don't even, at this point, know what happiness really means, <laughs> it <is> or, means. <laughs> or what yeah. it would feel like outside of moments of joy
2: I experienced. It's a surprise when it happens. It's, a, it's always like a. It's blessed always
1: surprise. a surprise. I don't think the happy yeah. person
0: is thinking about whether or not they're happy. I guess, is, I guess you could say.
1: No, I think that's totally true. Yeah. Or the
2: guilt—the the guilt that comes with not being happy when you feel like you ought to be happy. Yeah That's the other thing It's like I'm not happy And I feel really guilty about it
0: But I also know It it does help me In terms of loving other people they're acting In alienating ways I just Or they're You know Especially in a time When everyone is so polarized You just want to see Like I I know that everyone Basically just wants to be happy And that yeah. that the, the, the way they're acting, they're trying to be they're trying to be happy, and and right. I, I am too in my own way. And maybe we disagree right. about the means, but there's something right. about the and. But what that's really saying is everyone is actually pretty unhappy. Like it,
1: <laughs> yes, and so that totally. that that creates
0: love and totally understanding. And there you go. Hashtag low anthropology. Right.
1: <laughs> this is like the worst. Whenever anybody's like, "I had a really happy childhood," I'm like, "Okay, we can't be friends." <laughs> <laughs>
2: well I, that's a dave you're out well, one of the yeah. things
1: it's true though one of the things in therapy that i've had
0: to you had to deal with is that you i did have a pretty happy childhood but that doesn't mean that the traumas that you do experience by nature of being a human are somehow less uh you, you there's a, there's a sense of like oh i'm they, they they don't belong to me or I have to minimize them or talk myself out of them. Right. When in fact right, right, right. things can still be hurtful and have a traumatic effect on you even if you overall had what was, you know, not a no one dropped dead. You know, it was Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's a way to yeah. it's a way to minimize pain that I think it's
1: hard to grow up in the shadow of Simeon.
0: <laughs> it is. I feel that. Uh, I opened myself up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Any final words on happy I mean I'm sure we've really solved this one. We've made everyone feel but like about this forever. I mean
1: we could, but I just I I think I hope people can find rest in us sort of revisiting this topic that no one's happy. And actually weirdly, the happier we get, the clo- is the closer we get to death. And there's something really uh, beautiful about going home to Jesus in that. So
2: Yeah, and you you would hope that this pandemic would be the moment when people might actually be able to admit, but they still can Mm -mm. Although there was one blessed saint in my church who I just love, and I asked her, she came over and she was like helping answer the phones, and I was like, how are you doing? She's like, meh not so great. I was like, wow. She's like, yeah, I've just decided I'm done lying. (laughs) You know, and she's so wonderful. I love it too. I was like, you're the best. Oh my God. You know,
0: actually I almost, another article that I sort of want to talk about today was one that Sarah wrote a long time ago about underestimating women and overconfident men. And you, you cite this stuff that's basically a bunch of men not feeling the uh, current, the ability, the permission to say that they're struggling because uh, Brene Brown and you talk all, about this stuff and 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 it's exactly like what you're what you're saying like i don't even if i am struggling i don't feel a room in a room full of my peers that i can say that without there being totally. major there are actually being even real per, repercussions
1: i literally see myself like in any group setting i'm in with clergy i always take the naughty bolts Weber approach which is F it, I'll go first. <laughs> and, and like whenever people are like, it's great. It's great. It's great. I'm like, guys, this is really sucking. Like, (laughs) like I just, I think, I think the more that we can be that presence in the room for each other. I mean, I think that, I don't know. I just think it's really important, but I know not everyone is capable of that. And I am, you know, it was very interesting to have this conversation with my husband and have him say, well, you know, I did that too. It's like, yeah, you probably did. Like you're like, Holding this together, you mm-hmm. know, like I don't know, it's just and there's
0: there's probably times when he feels things are great, like there's little victories that you
1: can hold on to, but a hundred percent overall. But if you're talking to your colleagues, man. It's like everything is awesome. Like, We're did in I a did pandemic. I tell you about the time I
2: was with a bunch of clergy and I did that? There was a guy giving a presentation and he was just going on and on about how just great his life was and all the books he was reading <laughs> oh, and gosh. the amazing vacations he took. What and did RJ say? All this sort of stuff, <laughs> and I and I was just like. I don't, I, I was like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. I can't do any of that. No. Like I'm, I'm struggling here. And it was, it was a safe space to do that. And he just looks at me as like, well, I'm just really hard. I'm really sorry to hear that, but you need to get, you need to get your act together. You need to get organized. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then some people came to me afterwards and they're like, RJ, thank you for saying that. I was thinking the same thing. And I found out later this particular person had like a few months before like almost gotten divorced, yes. like really close to gotten divorced. Yes. And yes. I was just like, "Come on, dude. just like, say what that, is... please say yeah. that." I know. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's Ugh. it's. Uh, well, let's go from uh, that's actually a pretty good segue into another article from two. You're welcome. 2011, and talking about the difficulties of doing the the, the work that we're all engaged in some form of Christian ministry here. Uh, in 2011, Eric Weiner wrote an article called "Americans Undecided About." God. Now, this is one of the first big articles to use the word religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, For a nation of talkers and self-confessors, we are terrible when it comes to talking about God. The discourse has been co-opted by the true believers on one hand and angry atheists on the other. What about the rest of us? The rest of us, it turns out, constitutes the nation's fastest growing religious demographic. We are the nuns who say we have no religious affiliation at all. The percentage is even higher among young people. At least a quarter are nuns, and that was 10 years ago. Why the rise of the nuns? Well, two researchers out of uh, Notre Dame uh, think politics is to blame. Their idea is that we've mixed politics and religion so completely that many simply opt out of both. Apparently, they're reluctant to claim a religious affiliation because they don't want the political one that comes along with it. Whatever the case, we are more religiously polarized than ever. In my secular, urban, and urbane world, God is rarely spoken of, except in mocking, derisive tones. It is acceptable to cite the latest academic study on, say, happiness, or even better, whip out a brain scan, but God? He is for suckers and Republicans. Nuns don't get hung up on weim, weim. <laughs> nuns don't get hung up on whether a religion is true or not, and instead of subscribe to William James's maxim that truth is what works. If a certain spiritual practice makes us better people, more loving, less angry, then it is necessarily good and, by extension, true. We believe that G. K. Chesterton got it right when he said, "It is the test of a good religion whether you can joke about it." By that measure, <laughs> by that measure, there is very little good religion out there put bluntly god is not a it's lot of fun really
2: on the nose these days sorry god is not a lot of fun
0: these days many of us don't view religion so generously all we see is an angry god he's constantly judging and smiting and so are his followers no wonder so many americans are enamored of the dalai lama he laughs often and well precious few of our religious leaders laugh they shout what is the solution The answer, I think, lies in the sort of entrepreneurial spirit that has long defined America, including religious America. We need a Steve Jobs of religion, someone or ones who can invent not a new religion, but rather a new way of being religious. Okay, so we're ten years on from this article. The rise of the nuns is not uh, does not seem to be um, going away. It's only getting stronger. Building, I think the uh, polling around the election was 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 sort of bracing in this respect. And you have uh, we're we're a part of churches that are at least nationally in pretty steep decline. Um, what do you make of this? I want to hear. From you as um, sort of a well it's you know it, you go to these church conferences or theological conferences, and no one wants to really confront the uh, elephant in the room, which is that it's dying you know like w- this th-
2: well but it's so i was um I was doing some premarital counseling recently with a couple, one of whom was kind of raised in the church, one of them who wasn't really, and um, they don't live in Florida, they live somewhere else, but they live in a in, in a context where it's sort of not okay to be Christian, right? It's not okay to go to church, and so we're looking over the Episcopal service, and they all sort of—they're wonderful, they're lovely, and they have so many questions and, but also fears. You know, like if we if we talk about God at a wedding at all to people who may not be Christian, is that going to be offensive? Like mm-hmm. they didn't say that, but that was I could I could feel that, you know. And I sort of said to them, I said, "Hey, you know, I've you know, I've lived in California, I've lived in New York, I've lived in all sorts of places where like it was scary to talk about God. Like I totally get that, but let me say, like in my experience, if you can if you can talk about Jesus in a way that is not confrontational, that's generous, that's a little bit funny and human and genuine, like I have I have not experienced people getting angry about that, you know. And and what he's talking about is sort of a a new persuasive words, Thornton Wilder type thing, right? That that the, the gospel has to be reinterpreted and and recommunicated for every new generation. Um, but I have found in a variety of contexts, like it, it people seem to want to talk about God. They seem to want to hear about Jesus as long as you're, yeah, not using it as a cudgel, right? As, as long as you're not sort of beating them up with it. And Jesus is so compelling. Mm. He's so compelling. Um, and so I, I I hope and pray for this, you know, that that there'll be some version of talking about Jesus that's going to be palatable to people again, and will not carry with it so much baggage, so much political social baggage, because um, that just it's not true to who he is. It's it's the opposite of who he is. You know Jesus doesn't take sides. He he takes he takes the side of sinners. <laughs> That's the only side he takes, you know.
1: I I totally agree with you. I just I think about working with people who um you know are at an age where it's funny when I started this job my sweet mom was like um well I mean, you know, y'all are going to have uh there's got to be at least 15 kids who grew up as acolytes uh, <laughs> at Rice like they were just going to come over. I was like, "Oh my gosh." Like it's not like that anymore. A lot of my students didn't grow up at church at all, you know? Um, And if the Episcopal church is any kind of track record, like they got confirmed and left anyway. So they haven't been in a church in a long time. And so, um, you know, we're really welcoming them for the first time into this space. And RJ, I think everything you're saying is true. I think, um, you know, offering this vision of, Jesus that is frankly, just more biblically correct, but a guy that is, um, a guy that takes forgiveness really seriously, but doesn't seem to take himself too seriously. Uh. And I think that's kind of where we land a lot in, in the ministry that I work with is that, you know, we, we really believe this and we really mean this. And, And also like, we are very serious about um, how hilarious it is too you mm. know so i i just i don't know i mean i'm it's hard for me to be hopeful cuz i i do see the numbers out of you know national church numbers across mainline denominations and i kind of wonder what will be left um i i think you know i've seen these really interesting uh, and by interesting, I mean just very unpleasant conversations from progressive white people about what, you know, black and brown people should care about when it comes to church. And um, it's interesting. I was I was talking to a friend about this because um, some people, are, she's Mexican, and some people had really gone after her about, you know, the way she thinks about Jesus, the way she thinks, uh, you know, pr- very seriously about... Um, Theology in a, in a, uh, you know, I'll just say in an orthodox way, and in a way that is true to Scripture, that's true to the person of Jesus in Scripture. And she said to me, it was so powerful. She said, "You know, Sarah, what they don't understand is that black and brown people have just needed Jesus more." Mm. And um, Mm. you know, I, 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 I get that we can spend all kinds of time talking about what's wrong with the right, but like that's not my context. My context is. You know, often in my wider denomination, the far left, and how you know, corrective, um, we seem to long to want to be towards everyone. Um,
2: yeah. Well, It's always a cudgel, one way or another, yeah. right? Everyone is everyone is wanting to beat someone else down for oh, not yes. thinking the way that they think. Everybody
1: down, yes, yeah. Well, yeah. But anger is an addiction, y'all, and we gotta go <laughs> it's through this stuff. Do you know what I mean? It feels I good. It's well, it's good. the dr-
0: drug of choice these days. Mm-hmm. I think you do have um, a lot of uh, yeah a, a, a huge amount of um, uh, I think corrective going on, and just just the, the people that have occupied the religious space for whatever reason, their their personalities are quite similar, even if they're not um, mm-hmm. uh, even if they're not uh, at least we're we're talking about the institutional church, I guess. They're, even if they're. Politics aren't that similar, or even their theology. Yes. But there's a there's a kind of a, frankly a kind of a, uh, just a, a Pharisaism to it uh, that is. Totally. Let me tell you how to be. Is Let me tell you the think and Very very and. Yeah, that, that's that's, that's why I want to straighten everyone out, and um, rather than be the place you go when 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 you're not straightened out.
1: I'm just sometimes I'm like, how is it that the far left of the church reminds me so much of like Southern Baptists from 1996? Like, I'm so confused. You know what I mean? Like, but there's a parallel it's there. All that, the law, yeah. And I so when I there are all these people who are the nuns who don't want to participate in this, like, a I totally get it. And B, like, I'm so sad. Like, there's such relief in the gospel and forgiveness and grace and, and community. And I really long for them to know that part of the word, you know? Yes. Um,
0: so what would be... Here's a question then for you both. You've been at this a while. What's your What's your elevator pitch? Say you're in, you're, in, you're, in, you're in an elevator with a nun. And not only do they ask you what you do, but they're sort of like, well, why should I care? <laughs> What would you say? What would you say?
2: I'd say Jesus, Jesus Christ is the most compelling person who's ever lived. You know, and and uh, yeah, I mean I, that sounds weird. You know, I I could go into forgiveness and love and 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 but to me, you know, yeah, and you know, being curious about who about who about who Jesus is. Yeah, you know, if you actually if you actually read about him, if you actually talk about him. It's just crazy, man. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I tend to tell people, and I work with college students and community is so important to them, uh, especially right now. So we talk about, I I tell people about the community of the church and, you know, that we want to know you and want to love you um, because God already knows you and loves you. And we just, you know, we want to reflect that back. I mean, I, I think that's that's kind of the space I inhabit right now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I took my job, my students were like, "I love this description. They were like, "This is the Chill church." <laughs> <laughs> and I like that. And also, right, like we also are, we also mean the gospel. We mean Christ's love for a broken world. And, uh, you know, and is there a way that we can be both of those things? Yeah. Um, and that those things can be the same thing, right? That And that's, I think, what I mean when I say, like, you know, that Jesus takes forgiveness and mercy so seriously, but doesn't take himself. I mean, he just clearly Just walk through the world without a damn. You know, and in in so many ways. I
0: mean my one of my default go-tos, I guess, would just simply, well, you know, it's it's the Walker-Percy question. It's like, well, what else is there? And then to talk yeah. about the various competing, and that's what seculosity is. It's a way to sort of dress down or at least examine how other mock religions really operate and how they create other forms of anxiety, and some would say even uh, worse forms of anxiety. I think I, but I, I I don't think that's enough to say the opposite, I think, to to talk compellingly about the, uh, my own need for to be y- yes to be forgiven to experience something other than what I something beyond what I simply deserve and to, to for the world to experience I- I- that, that I find that to be a deeply uh, hopeless scenario to think about the world as being just um, ebb and flow reaction uh, over you know uh, action reaction and that somehow the interruptive grace of God whereby um, you get what you don't deserve uh mm-hmm. that that to me, seems to be the only um, hope for a drowning world, and that in my mind is is um inseparable from the person of Jesus Christ. And that is um, a lot for people to take in, I suppose, but I I mean that's a long elevator.
2: I mean right? it. Well, what it boils down to like either this is all there is, either this is all there is or it's not. And if right. this is all there is, like that's a pretty sad that's a pretty sad thought, you know and and there seems to me compelling. Reasons to believe that there there might be something more than this. There might actually be a God who who cares and who loves. And and then when it comes to Christianity in particular, what I've often said is, I'm a Christian because I'm not good enough to be anything else. You know, like Ooh, I just that's I a can't. Good line. Yeah. You you per-
0: I, you, you I particularly. Mean,
1: yeah. Sorry. I-
2: yeah. For, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I uh, I always think about this thing that happened when I was really small. There was a family in our neighborhood, and they um, they had two girls who were around my age, and they had a little boy who was around my brother's age. And, you know, I've said before, my brother and I have a pretty wide age gap. So um, I knew them really well. And their brother, when he was less than two years old, um, you know, the parents were at a neighbor's house, and the kids were running around, and he drowned in a pool. And it was horrible and I remember it was especially horrible for my parents because there was just too many parallels you know and they were not Christian and the mom could not just absolutely could not cope with the idea that the baby wasn't going anywhere. that was like and the, the marriage did not last um she ended up finding her way into church getting remarried and actually having another child. But I think, for me, it's like, Christianity is so necessary in my life because, I mean, God forbid anything like that happen, but things like that will happen. Things of great suffering will happen, and I have to fall apart somewhere. Like, I have to know that Mm. there's something... I mean, I think, RJ, what you're saying is so powerful, like... It, this can't be all there is. Like I can't cope with that. Yeah, it's not a. It's I admire not, people who are like yeah. aggressive, not reason, Christian. I'm like, you must be so much stronger than. Yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's a reason all the existentialists like committed suicide. Yeah. Like I hate to say, yeah. you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, there's a there's a misconception, and it's not the reason people address walk away from Christianity is not only because they've misunderstood it i think they also just don't see evidence for god and uh, and and they're uh, acting out of their own hurt and 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 simply so- the god's silence there's no um i i want to respect the fact that some people do engage with the with the real stuff and just cannot swallow it but i also mm-hmm. know that um the question is always like if your faith is not a, a way of getting around problems in life right. it's a way of getting through them and it's where you right. go yes. when you're in the midst yes. of them and god that's where god Ooh, is yes. and that's a that to my mind is something that has gotten lost a lot of lot of times and they say yeah. well god this can't be true if 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 this terrible thing has happened to me and you say well Th- that w- look at what happened to God <laughs> right. uh, or anyway, maybe that's too much for an elevator pitch, but I, I do wonder about what the the next generation, I don't think we would be to take anything for granted in terms of um, their their sort of religious point of view. Um, but I also think that they're living under an enormous burden of proving and performance and uh, non-stop comparison that is truly. Diabolical and will, will, we'll, no, it will take its own pound of flesh. Yes. I, I, I don't yes. want to, I don't want to posit Christianity as a cure for your mental health, but I do think it's a, it's an oasis for people who, um, who are uh, sick and tired and exhausted and have no, nowhere else to go. And that's, I wish that would come across. And in fact, the last thing we're going to read today is sort of in line with everything you've been saying. It's from Francis Spufford. This, his book on apologetic came out before we, um, before we uh, started this podcast, and it has some of the best language about God, and especially
2: about Jesus. It's incredible. Jesus. It's incredible. If you haven't read it, you have to... I just started rereading it yesterday, not knowing we are going to talk about It, it is just so unbelievable. Well, good. if
0: you want to know why go we, go what, what we mean when we say Jesus is, is compelling, here, here's what, how he puts it. I'm going to read a little bit from the Yeshua chapter, and we can talk about it. "'Lost people arouse his particular tenderness in all their varieties.' people whose bodies or minds don't work properly, people especially managed by the HPTFTU, which is his word for sin, uh, people who one way or another fall foul of purity rules, whether it's their own doing or not, people who live beyond the usual bounds of sympathy because they're ugly or frightening or boring or incomprehensible or dangerous, people who are not people like us, whoever we happen to be, people who are not the right kind of people, whether that is being, whatever that is being defined as. In theory... Yeshua, Jesus, has come to help the lost sheep among the God-fearers, the lost sheep of Israel. That's what he says. But in practice, over and over again, he gives his whole attention to whoever he meets, including a multitude of foreigners and members of the occupying army. Yeshua's sense of people is not additive. More is not better. Each person in front of him is, for that moment, the one missing sheep. Mm -hmm. Yeshua, Jesus, isn't a relativist, though. Far from it. He doesn't think you should relax and do what you like, and it won't really matter what. He believes in good and evil, all right, to a drastic degree. He has a vivid, horrified sense of sin in all its elaborate, self-deceiving, semi-oblivious encrustedness, and he talks as if it overshadowed huge swaths of human activity, including human activities that humans tend to be proud of. Whenever anyone asks him about the law, he usually ups the ante, he amps the law up toward a perfectionist impossibility in which anger is forbidden as well as murder, in which desire can be as much of a betrayal as adultery, in which internal states of being that apparently don't hurt or even affect anyone else weigh as heavily with God as external acts. He annoys people when he talks like this because the implication of his perfectionism is that everybody is guilty. And if everybody is guilty, nobody gets to congratulate themselves and murderers and adulterers cannot be shunned. If what he says is right, then there are only people in whom the universal HPTFTU has taken a particular turn, has been indulged in particular ways. They are not outcasts. They do not belong in a category of unclean persons that the clean rest of us can hold at arm's length. Yeshua insists that being unclean is not a temporary violation of the proper state of things. It is the normal human condition. He has a lot to say about self-righteousness, which he compares not very tactfully to a grave that looks neat and well-cared for up top, but is heaving with corruption down below. Maggots, basically. And the point of this repulsive image is not just that the inside and outside of a self-righteous person don't match, that there's a hypocritical contradiction between the claim to virtue and the actual content of a human personality. It's also that for him, being sure you're righteous, standing on your own dignity as a virtuous person, comes precious close to being dead. If You won't hear this bad news about yourself. You can't know yourself. You condemn yourself to the maintenance of an exhausting illusion, a false front to yourself, which keeps out doubt and with it hope, change, nourishment, breath, life. If you won't hear the bad news, you can't begin to hear the good news about yourself either, and you'll do harm. You'll be pumped up with the false confidence of virtue, and you'll think it gives you a license, and a large share of all the cruelties in the world will follow. For evil done knowingly is rather rare compared to the evil done by people who, sh- who, sh- who are sure that they themselves are good, and that evil is hatefully concentrated in some other person. And yet, he, Jesus, is never disgusted. He never says that anything, anyone, is too dirty to be touched, that anyone is too lost to be found. Even in situations where there seems to be no grounds for human hope, he will not argue that hope is gone beyond recall. Wreckage may be written into the logic of the world, but he will not agree that it is all there is. He says, more can be mended than you fear. Far more can be mended than you know. I know it's a lot. It's a lot of words. It's beautiful
2: words. To me, those are just... So persuasive, you know, to someone who lives in the world who is willing to just tell the, you know, see the truth of their own existence and face what life looks like, what hopeless life looks like. If, if there's nothing more than than that, to me, that 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 connects. You know, it might it might make good Christian people a little bit nervous. You know, it it makes me a little bit nervous because we we want to believe the the best of ourselves. We want to believe what we're what we're capable of. Um, and yet, to someone who uh, is a little more pessimistic or realistic or whatever, I just think it. Yeah, he's speaking. It's it's the truth mm. in a way that no one else seems to be talking about.
1: Yeah, it makes me think a lot about. I've been thinking a lot lately about anger and how anger is this like. Uh, just like the loveliest blanket emotion to wrap yourself in so you don't have to deal with all of the emotions underneath it um and you know how anger and self-righteousness in a lot of ways are the same thing i was i heard this story about this um prisoner ex-con who was uh uh going through some sort of anger management stuff and he was like you know yelling and big and angry and the facilitator asked him to like literally get on the floor where like his elbows or his knees were like at his ears almost like to crouch that low and then it was like now tell us how you feel and he was able then to say you know I'm sad and I'm lonely and I'm disappointed and I think that There's something about the gospel, you know, and it's funny. It's like happiness and anger, (laughs) especially like the mandate of happiness are similar. And, and that there are all these, um, things underneath. Um, and those things are so beautiful and so painful. And, um, and Jesus compels us over and over again. that that's the space we're called to live in. Mm. Um, and that's not easy at all. And you know, I would say I spend a solid ninety five percent avoiding that space. <laughs> but that is the that is the sweet space that we're called to live in. That's beautiful.
2: And in our culture, anger is a completely accepted emotion. Oh, totally. Like yeah. if you're not if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Yes. You know. Yeah. But God forbid you say. I'm lonely, I'm sad, yeah. I'm struggling. Like that's not allowed.
1: Yeah. Or the people that you're angry with, like to look at them and say, They're struggling, right? They're lonely. They're you know, they're trying to find hope in a hopeless moment. Like it the gospel just like cracks that open, and once it's been opened, I mean that's the warning label that should come with Christianity. Yeah, because <laughs> you can't undo it, and so all the things you used to be able to do. I mean, I guess that maybe that sanctification is um, anger. Anger doesn't feel as good as it used to.
0: <laughs> well, we saw, uh, d- didn't we saw a powerful example of that on Saturday Night Live last week when Dave Chappelle addressed the nation and, Holy moly. and ended up sort of, uh, pleading for magnanimity on behalf of, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the people that, the sort of villains in that yeah. scenario. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Remember how you felt four years ago? Half of the country is feeling that way right now. Yeah, and and, and <laughs> yeah.
0: that's uh, he could say it. I, I can't say it. In fact, I got the, a, a vicious response to something I wrote recently, in which the person said that the our, our take on grace is so um, overpowering that it suggests that what we do doesn't matter, and that no, nothing we do matters, and it's a sort of an individual piety, which is um, it was it was a. I saw, I, you know, I can know where where they would get that impression, and yet what, at least what Spufford is saying about Jesus is that, no, what you do matters. It matters more than you know. Oh, Jesus.
1: That's so. (laughs) I mean, Dave, you're so gracious, but like, I am such a kinder person because of the message of the gospel. I'm such a more generous person because of the message of grace. Like, I get really frustrated when people say that about us. I get mad, but I I get angry because underneath it, I'm like, you don't know how. Broken, I was like you don't know how much I lived in anger and self righteousness and rage before I heard this. Like it just is like you've you've missed the point if right. you think that it's too much. You've missed the point. Or when
0: you think that then f- therefore because all of your actions matter so much that you're just going yeah. to give up eventually. And
1: yeah, and uh, like
2: it's a new uh, kind of slavery. It's a
0: new kind of slavery. Sarah, you said something to me the other day. It was one of these Holy Spirit moments. I got a text one night. I was feeling discouraged after actually receiving uh, this um, very uh, attacking uh, response. And uh, you said to me, um, you said, if you're really on the side of grace, you have to accept the fact that there aren't any sides. <laughs> mm. Which
1: was so weird, Dave, because, you know, I'm I all pray by my bedside on my knees. And I had prayed and I got up and the phone was right there. And it literally was like, God was like, You need to text us today. It's all. And I, cause I hadn't heard, I didn't really know what was going on with this email or whatever. And so I just, it was such a Holy spirit moment. Um, and anyway, but it's true. Like, I mean, I totally feel like those aren't even my words. Like God just, if you're if
0: you're really out. on the side of grace you have to accept the fact that there aren't any sides i mean that to me it's enough to make me g- g- cry right right this minute thinking about it because we our sides are so precious to us and you know the the, the uh, last thing yeah. um the self righteous person wants to give up is their righteousness and it's yeah um including myself and uh you know, I, I anyway, that that to me was a a Jesus moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> spoken to 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 me when I thought, oh, oh crap, have I have I taken the wrong side in some way? Have I mm. have I been irresponsible in advocating for the unheard in 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 my own way? And it was, um, anyway, I, I, it it was it was a Holy Spirit moment for me, and I thank you for it, Sarah. And I, I want mm. everyone to hear that because that, thats that's the warning label that needs to come on the the package when you become a Christian. Like warning, warning, you're going you're not gonna be able to basically be on uh, any side that you're on too strongly
2: is going to you're, yeah. you're going to be stripped of it. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, yeah. the second, <laughs> but you'll be <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'll be on everyone's side. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you yeah. don't take. It's it's not that. You, it's an absence of sides. Is that right. you're on everyone's side, right? you know, because Jesus is on everyone's side and not to say I accomplished that at all, right. but that's what we're called to. Right.
1: That's like the, um, the, the, cho- you choose your adventure books. You guys remember those? Like, I feel yes. like there's always like an extra step for Christians. It's like the first, we do the first, we do the step everybody does, right? Initially, where we're like, I'm bad as hell and I'm going to key a car. And then, like, on, but on Christians choose your adventure, there's like a little note underneath. It's like, turn to page 42. And then you get to page 42 and you're like, you got to remember that Jesus loves these people just the way he loves you and all your wretchedness. And you're like, Damn. <laughs> I know
2: it does. It undercuts you. It's not just deconstruction. No. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: So, well, that's 200 episodes of, uh, this, uh, reminder of, um, or Hopefully, hopefully, if, if, if those emails we read at the beginning of the time have any merit, well then uh, hopefully that uh, Jesus is on all of our side in the midst of our uh, conflicted, heavy demands and, and unhappy, very often unhappy, but also occasionally deeply joyous, um, everyday lives. Not out there, not in the news, not but actually where we're living. Um, and I thank you, both of you, for being a part of it, and I also have to thank T.J. Hester, who is the T. guy behind the boards, T. and he—he—he's um, an incredible uh, cheerleader, but also he's the reason that these don't sound um, distractingly bad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just am grateful for his patience, and I'm grateful for everyone who listens, and for those who support the ministry of Mockingbird. This is—we're um, mm. uh, so, so thankful, and we hope. Um, yeah, we hope. Please pray for us as we continue in this because next week um, or in a couple weeks, uh, Ethan is recording the sports issue uh, episode of the podcast. So that'll come out next. And then we'll come back for, I think, for a couple of uh, Advent Christmassy uh, ones. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, um, yeah. RJ, I'll sing. RJ,
2: you can give us one one last thing. Absolutely. It's the most wonderful time.
1: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) RJ, you're like. That's my Johnny
2: Mathis impression.
1: Oh, yeah. But also Mm. Tom, the British guy. Tom from the 70s. Not unusual. Tom Jones. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Love Tom Jones. Love Tom Jones. Welsh power. Okay. Well, uh, to those. (laughs) Not
2: unusual to be loved by you guys. Happy (laughs) Thanksgiving. Praise God. I'm thankful for you. (laughs) You too. Thankful for you guys. guys. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.emberd.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.